Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig and welcome to this week's episode of the Full 60. This week's guest, and he is on the line right now, is somebody that I've been meaning to have on for a long time for so many reasons. Um, it's Chris Snow, the Calgary Flames Assistant General Manager, and there's a lot to get into um, with Chris. First, let me just, Chris, how are you? You know, Thanks I'm doing, doing well. I'm doing well. I'm coming up on two days from now uh, is the one-year anniversary of a doctor, a doctor who has studied this disease for his entire career telling me that I had one year to live. And mm. I, I think that, you know, I looked forward to this date as I felt, you know, really good uh, through the winter months with such excitement as, as a real marker. And, uh, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm out there every day right now going for bike rides with my kids, playing football and baseball left-handed, uh, doing really anything I want to do. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's hard to, it, it's hard to look, uh, that far forward with a uh, disease like mine, but the, the medication that I'm on, uh, is, is giving me an opportunity for a longer, a lot longer likely period of time than I was initially given. And, uh, yeah. you know, the gratitude I feel right now, it, it's always mixed with anxiety, uh, and, and an unknown about you know, what could happen next because I could wake up one day and not feel as good. Um, but I, I, I remind myself on a regular basis to feel gratitude. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's, let's, let's start right there because, um, you know, if, if, for listeners, if you're not familiar with Chris's story, I, I mean, certainly I'm assuming you are, if you're listening to this, but he, a year ago was diagnosed with ALS and, um, this is coincidentally ALS awareness month. And one, you know, one of the many reasons I want to have Chris on here because I love. Let's let's start here. I love what you guys have been doing with just you know with the the trick shot for Snowy, um, especially because I, I like some trash talk with you and your GM Brad for living. That was fun to, <laughs> to, to to watch. Where did that concept come from? Uh, Candace Gowdy, who runs our charitable foundation with the team, gave me a call in late May. And she said, ALS Awareness Month in Canada is coming up, and we came okay. up with an idea. And she said, it's, it's kind of a takeoff on the Ice Bucket Challenge, and our hope is that this can go, you know, viral. Uh, the Ice Bucket Challenge went viral to, you know, one of the greatest extents probably in, in history. Uh, yeah, really. and, ra- and raised, I think, $50 million toward research and support uh, of people with ALS. And so Candace walked me through this trick shot challenge and said it can be absolutely anything. Uh, it can be any sport. Uh, a neighbor of ours had a little take on it. He actually had a shot glass in his hand and uh, dropped and caught it and drank it. Uh, so, it, you know, any any interpretation of shot, I suppose, goes. And the idea was this is this is something that is creative. It's fun. It gives people a chance to show off a little bit uh, and obviously attempt to just grow it and grow it. So I was I was thrilled with the idea. And then, as you mentioned, uh, we kicked it off and, and Candace challenged Michael Backlund and me. And Michael Backlund uh, cares a great deal about the cause. Uh, he's mm-hmm. one of our players, obviously. And he cares a great deal because uh, his wife's mother passed away. Uh, Frida is his wife and her mom passed away from ALS a few years back. And 
ever since then, he's uh, committed himself more and more so to uh, finding ways to fundraise and support the ALS Society of Alberta. And uh, I had to do something, of course, and some great neighbors of ours uh, down the hill from us, the Thompson family, they they got their old 2000 Pathfinder out and uh, drew up a neat sign that said uh, Trick Shot for Snowy and, and our website. And uh, I was able to shoot a puck through the window and into the net behind it. And uh, I, I didn't totally mean to take a shot at tree, but kind of did. And uh, <laughs> I talked to him the next day and he's like, really, really? <laughs> I said, well, uh, I, I had gone almost a year doing a lot of media without offending anybody, and then it was you. <laughs> and so <laughs> he he got out uh, a couple of days later into the Saddle Dome, and it's funny. He, he his idea was to go up to the 200 level of our building and shoot a puck into the the far net. And the corner sections in the Saddle Dome, uh, I've run them. Uh, they're exhausting. They're probably 25 mm-hmm. rows. I can't imagine a higher. Uh, you know, second level in the league than those corner sections. So he said he didn't want to have to go back down. So he brought two buckets of bucks and he grabbed three sticks, a, uh, a Dubé, uh, a Monahan, and a, a Giordano. And uh, he said he had Dubé stick and he hit like four sections of the light tower. And then he kind of tossed, <laughs> tossed that to the side. And uh, I don't know if it was his 12th, 15th attempt, somewhere in there. Um, he put one in and, and I will admit you got to carry a lot of seating and you've got to be accurate. You got to hit a, you know, a six foot section there. So that was, uh, that was pretty impressive. And I thought it was impressive that it he, was, that he hit that. it was, I gave it to him. I said that to was athletic and I, I did say, I thought you were breathing pretty hard on the attempt. He definitely him. was. He was <laughs> he said, for the record. He said, well, he said, I, I, I had to carry the bucks and I had to talk and I had to shoot. So, you know, I was deep into it. <laughs> <laughs> and he challenged that's, that's uh, he challenged some people, including Ryan Reynolds, the actor who has, I think, about fifteen to twenty million followers. So the the goal, of course, is I think we've done you know thanks to the Canadian media and the national hockey mm-hmm. media in both countries a good job within the hockey circle of telling our story and fundraising. But the idea now is we've got to really expand the scope of who we're reaching. Right. Um... And and I I wanted to to get at that because you know in prepping for this I went back and read a lot of the stuff that came out a year ago and um, you know one of the things your wife Kelsey said was you know this is this news was the most devastating thing to happen in our lives and obviously right. but you know just to see that and and it's just crushing and you guys made a very conscious decision to share this right. story good like good and bad. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is all my questions are going to be quoting Kelsey because she's been so um, it, like her, her writing and her uh, just transparency and vulnerability, I would say, has yep. been has been amazing. And um, was that a discussion you know, the two of you had? Because I, I don't I mean, I, I don't know how any of us would respond or how I would respond personally, but I tend to want to go very private with right. anything that is unrelated to hockey in my writing career or my, you know, whatever. Um, I don't know what would I, how I would handle it. What, what was that discussion like to not do that? Sure. Sure. I, I don't remember if we ever made a very conscious decision on a certain date together. I would say that, you know, and, and we might touch upon it, but you know, I, I've lost my father to this illness in 2018 I lost a cousin to this illness in, I believe, 2016, and he was 28 years old. Uh, I lost his father, my uncle, 
two years prior to that. And I lost another uncle in 2004, back when I would have met you covering hockey. And, 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 and I never really did anything in the way of uh, raising a dollar uh, in an attempt to either support people with the disease or uh, contribute toward a cause. Uh, I never, I never stepped out and, and honored, uh, them and did something about what they went through to make sure that that didn't happen to our family again. And if it did, that we had at least given our best effort to help our family and, and anybody with this. So I think I knew when, uh, I was diagnosed that, you know, I had to do that and I have a platform like we're, we don't all in this world have the ability to reach a lot of people. Um, I'm fortunate to be able to reach people uh, through Hockey Night in Canada this year, through all of the journalists who have called, uh, through Kelsey's, you know, written pieces on her blog, uh, on Twitter, on Facebook. So we we just felt like if I was going to go through this, we were going to make it worthwhile. It was going to mean something. And uh, as you mentioned, like her, her writing has been uh, terrific. It's funny, she always says that, because I was a writer. I covered the, the Red Sox for a year and a half. I covered the Wild for a year and a half. And uh, we were actually reading some of my old stories the other night. And, you know, pe- people thought that, uh, you know, I was a really, really good writer. And I would always say to her, like, well, you're every bit as good or better. And now mm-hmm. I tell her, the world has no idea that I wrote and they think you're the best writer in the world. And I think that's <laughs> awesome because she is at her best as a writer. Uh, probably not at a, a Tuesday baseball game, uh, you know, with a lopsided score, but when she's, um, what she did, she was a baseball writer for mm-hmm. uh, five years, but when she is emotionally invested in the subject. So those were her best stories as a journalist, and she's never been more emotionally invested in a subject than this. And it right. just comes very naturally to her. You know, she doesn't tell herself she has to do a blog a week or a month, but when something in our lives happens uh, that strikes her, she just starts to write on her phone or her computer. And um, I think it's been, it's been so nice for me because it's being chronicled and there's no one I'd rather chronicle it. And I, I do think that someday she's going to write again. And I, you know, in an odd way, this will probably help her, you know, make people out there realize, you know, they should have her working, you know, writing for her because she's, she's special at it. Yeah. It's, it's been unbelievable. And it's been, um, like I, I think of her most recent blog post, it, you know, there's, it, it was certainly, you know, from the outside, the all the positive news was was great, and you're like cheering it on, yep. and and so now it was like, okay, here's been a, a turn, and you can just feel the, um, the pain, right? Like you know, mm-hmm. I'm now for the first time in a year or whatever, we're noticing something that's not a positive progress, and, um, right. yeah, I thought I've it's it's. It just goes right to your soul when you read it. Well, that that is, I think, part of this is, is you know, it's not if you have good news, you got to share it, and because it's providing hope to people who mm-hmm. uh, who are in this and have this as well, uh, because they and I, at the very beginning of my diagnosis, viewed this as a uh, a no hope situation. You know, I've called it many many times a, a death sentence. Uh, that was the way I perceived this at the very beginning. And for many, many, many months, uh, as I went to Sunnybrook uh, Hospital in Toronto, 
I'd walk in and I'd have some anxiety and I'd walk out and know that every test was exactly the same. And I was walking, not being wheeled down that hallway and just feel like, okay, another month has passed and I'm good for another month. I felt like I was getting kind of, you know, topped up with this uh, medication they were giving me, which, which is actually what's happening is trying to sustain the same level of this, you know, this army fighting back this disease uh, in me. And, and then in, you know, probably the very beginning of April, it probably was, you know, I was slow to realize because I think changes can be very subtle. Um, but it just started to become more and more apparent that, you know, some facial muscle that controls smiling and, you know, allowing your kind of cheeks to pull up your upper lip and make you smile, that was being affected. And, uh, you know, it was almost like being not as, as hard, but almost like being diagnosed all over again because my mindset was so rock solid. Uh, as I say to people often who are friends or people who ask, you know, the, the mental part of this so far uh, has been for me much more challenging than the physical part, right? Like I can still do almost everything. I, I can use my right hand, but I found that it's, it's less of a necessity than I ever would have thought. Um, you know, I really, the only thing I run into trouble doing during the day is cutting. You know, I've got a pair of sneakers that has a bit of a, you know, cinch uh, component instead of a lace, so I can pull those tight. Um, but but that that kind of change, you know, it, it leads you back into a place where you're, you know, a place you can't really go, which is looking in the mirror for subtle changes. You know, looking at other parts of your body if you have a cramp or a, you know, a funny feeling or soreness and um, wondering if that's something. And 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 Kelsey's been so great there because. She has had a direct line to one of the key people at the place we were diagnosed in Miami. And, you know, she'll remind me of things they say, like, you know, is it, is it weakness or is it just soreness? Well, it's just soreness. Okay, then don't worry about it. Move on. Right. Uh, so she's, she's really, really good at uh, reassuring, but also challenging me to be honest with her and, and making sure that, you know, we're doing this the right way. Because I'm not in my own head too much and... And at the same time, we're not, you know, talking so much that I can't enjoy the day and focus on the fact that I am, <laughs> yeah. I am doing extremely well, like remarkably well. I, sh- I shouldn't even probably be here at this point in time. Mm. Like historically well, like this is, I mean, it's crazy. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, there are, I should point it out, there are, there are different types of, of the disease in the sense that they're, the, the doctors don't even know, like the leading doctors don't even know the number or nature of all of the causes of, of the disease. Um, 10% roughly of all ALS cases are genetically caused and passed down within the family. Um, mine, mine is that type, which makes it all the more cruel that this has happened, you know, five times in two generations in our family. Uh, like that that seemed, yeah, that, that's, yeah. Doesn't, that's not 10% to me unless you have a gigantic family. Like what? No. If if you did yeah. the uh, yeah the the independent odds calculator and then put those five events together, uh, the odds are so 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 low that I would have flipped the coin this way. Um, but but the type that I have is uh, not only you know a rare version; it, it's two percent of the hundred percent. Uh, it's one of the fastest, if not the fastest, progressing. Typically, uh, they give people with my variation six to eighteen months. Uh, my dad and both uncles were gone at exactly nine months and my cousin was 18 months and I don't, I don't know why with him. Maybe because he was younger and fitter. Um, 
but uh, the the twelve months I was given, I, I think I was probably given because it's the midpoint of that range. Right. When you say the mental side is more challenging than the physical, like like what do you mean by that? Like where does your mind go that sure. you, you find hard? Sure. I mean, I think most people who have the disease, it's both, right? They have weakness right. in their legs, their hands, their arms. Uh, in my case, there's nothing in the day that I struggle with physically. So the challenge is uh, not, you know, looking past just the given day sometimes. Uh, and then I think in particular with this, change to my my uh face and smile my concern would be okay that's that's a little too close for comfort to uh my tongue my throat you know the, the scary aspects of the disease which would be uh you know losing your ability to speak to swallow to uh breathe right because that's right. where ultimately people run into uh really the the later stages typically of the disease um and that's where you know again when my wife is good uh, one thing she she had to push me for weeks to do um, is to do something called uh, voice banking. And the idea with that, and, and really anybody, it would be kind of a neat thing to do, but especially if you have the chance of losing your voice, is recording thousands of words and expressions uh, so that, one, you have them, your, your kids have them, your family has them. But then if you were ever in a position where you couldn't speak, uh, there's technology that would allow you to, you know, look at words, look at letters, and then have your voice, you know, spoken for you by mm. a computer. Uh, if anyone follows Steve Gleason, uh, the New Orleans Saints player who has had ALS for, I think, nine years, and through a bunch of efforts has raised more than $10 million, uh, he, he's not had his voice for, I believe, years. Um, but he voice banked and he has a technology that allows him to go and speak. Uh, and he has little kids and they can hear his voice and they wouldn't have otherwise. So my wife always says, you know, we need to, we need to live in terms of our mindset. Like I'm going to live for decades and decades, but we have to plan for the worst. So I think that's, you know, so balancing those two mindsets is, is probably the essence of what you're asking, right? Like on the right. one hand, I need to get my mind around doing those things. And we have that equipment headed our way from the Gleason Foundation. Uh, but on the other hand, I've got to try not to think that that is in any way an indication of, you know, that's where I'm going to be in six months or three months or a year. And, and that would be that would be the challenge. When, when I work, uh, it's very easy to mentally uh, focus and, and not have any drift. And when I'm playing outside with the kids or on a bike ride, but I think it's it's the quieter times, and if I'm by myself, that I have to be more disciplined about, you know, move move to the next thought and don't move to a place of worry. Right, it, and I wanted to ask you about the work side of it because, um, I mean, not only are, have you continued to work, but you're it's you know you've continued to get more responsibility in the organization in this period of time. Was there a debate? for you internally or with Kelsey to say, okay, you know, is this what I want to be doing in this mm -hmm. time? Right. Right. And what did that look like? Yeah, there was a debate with her. There wasn't a debate internally <laughs> for me. Okay. Uh, I think her concern was, you know, the number of hours that I spent, you know, not around them. So if we had been in a, a, a quarantine state, I think she would have had no issue with 
that and we wouldn't even have discussed it because I would have been working, but I would have come down for a snack and down for lunch and down for a hug and all those kinds of things. Um, so really we talked a lot about at the very beginning. So last June about, you know, she used this phrase, uh, a summer to last a lifetime because she thought it might have to. And so what she asked is she said, you, you can do your normal work in the way of in the summer, it's, it's contracts and it's arbitration potentially. She said, but I'd like you to do as much as possible from home. Uh, and we went to New Hampshire where my family's had a lake house for longer than uh, I've been alive. And so we did a lot of, of that. And our, our people in tree was terrific. Uh, John Bean, our, our president came in in late June and said, you know, you don't have to be here, right? Like there's a reason for phones. There's a reason for computers. Uh, Ken King, who passed away in early March, Ken was, was equally supportive in the same way. So I felt, you know, I had their blessing and, and yet when I got toward you know, the late stages of August, I kind of had, you know, enough of that and wanted to, you know, be viewed as a full participant because I saw no reason not to, you know, tree tree, in fact, went as far one day as to say, you know, we should probably get somebody to kind of do your job for you or with you in case you can't. And, and I was asking, well, why, why would we do that? Right. And he's like, well, we're just trying to plan. And I said, well, that's fine. And I said, but I don't think I need that. And if I do, we're both going to notice it and there'll be enough lead time that we can make that happen. And I tried to build out the, the staff that I have. And a lot of them are, are part-time, some are full-time, but I try to fill out every skill set that I potentially needed to cover my own work just in case. And thankfully that, that hasn't been needed yet. Right. Like I think of the trade deadline, if I remember correctly, like you went and got treatment and then it was in Boston or somewhere. Yeah. Like this, it was a regular trade deadline. You know what I mean? Like there was no, I mean. That's right. That's, that, that actually yeah. worked out really well because uh, I always went to Toronto on a Wednesday. Treatment was on a Thursday. Uh, the deadline was on a Monday, as usual. So I flew early on a Friday morning and Kelsey just flew back home here. And, and I spent the five to six days there. It was nice because that's where my sister is and her kids. And mm-hmm. they were able to come to the Bruins Flames game. And we were all able to kind of be together up in that, that ninth level they have at the garden. And yeah. I was able to go on Nesson, which I used to do daily when I was a Red Sox writer a lifetime ago. <laughs> I can't believe it was, it was actually 14 years ago today that I stopped uh, covering baseball and the editor at the Boston Globe, Joe Sullivan, and said I'm going to work in hockey. Uh, so it was it was like a real homecoming. Wow. And then there were these women uh, in the seats who had a sign that said Boston loves Chris Snow, and I went down and gave them hugs back when you could hug people, and it was it was it was nice. It was really nice. It felt like quite a homecoming, and I was grateful that the deadline was in Boston, and that tree had us all convened there. But yeah, it was it was well timed. It actually was a shorter flight going from Toronto to Boston than Toronto home. Is that still the schedule you're on? Like, do you still have to go to Toronto to get treatment? Or No, as of, uh, let's see, my last Toronto visit was shortly after uh, COVID began. I think it was the very end of March. And at that point, uh, so as a little background here, there, there were for most of the year 15 trial sites, and there may still be, in North America uh, for people in this trial. And the number of people would be about 60. So not very big. And that number is a little bigger when you include the entire world. And when COVID started, uh, the people at the University of Calgary and the two hospitals, two of the three hospitals here, Foothills and Self Health, they got together 
and they made a real push to have my treatment relocated here. Uh, if you think about it, if I'm doing well and, and the drug manufacturer knows that, then it's probably in their best interest, not just mine, to have me not get on a plane and not get sick and not miss a treatment. Um, so so they, they had calls daily, uh, wee hours of the morning at night in order to facilitate my transfer, which is was really unusual because these sites have to go through thorough vetting, all sorts of protocol paperwork. And thankfully, the people here are leaders in the ALS community uh, nationwide. And they had already been up and running with a separate trial for the same company. So my next dose, which was the very end of uh, April or May 1st, maybe, was less than two miles from my house. So I, I mm. joked with the kids that I was going from flying to walking. And I've had two trips there, and I'll go there every four weeks for hopefully years and hopefully decades. When So I don't know if cruel is the right way, word here, but you know, one of the things about a trial is you have half of it is a placebo. Right. Like that to me, that would mess with me till no end. Right. Um, when did you... No, it wasn't a placebo. Like, was there a moment for you? Uh, yeah, I was told by people at the University of Miami who we lean on for insights that by October, so I started in late July, by October, I would have a good sense because I would either be really weaker or, or, or really weak um, or have lost some use of my upper arm or shoulder. They said okay. by October, I wouldn't be able to lift the uh, arm that was affected over my head. And okay. once I got to that point, and then every visit forward, I felt certain. And, and the doctors who are giving you the medication, they don't know. The researchers don't know. It's a, it's a double-blinded study. So they're, they're along for the mystery ride. And, okay. And, and, I was but, wondering you know, that. Going, yeah, they, they, they still don't know. Uh, they, when I first enrolled, the doctors in Toronto would tell me that they've had some patients, that they're really encouraged but that they are just extrapolating based on how those patients are doing, not based upon knowledge of whether the person got it. Uh, the odds in this case were two of three. Uh, so every, geez, for that month or two or three that I didn't know, I'd go in the shower every day and my wife had three shampoo bottles and two were purple and one was white. And I would look at those, just, just pray that I would get the purple one. But, you know, when, when you have no hope, when you're facing a, you know, zero hope scenario and someone tells you there's a two-thirds chance, then you're so excited by that. And I knew that even if I didn't get it then, though it would be so discouraging, that next checkpoint was, okay, I'll get it in February. And then we'll see. Then I might stabilize. And so I, I was okay with that, you know, because what else was I, what else was the other alternative? <laughs> the doctor, Lauren Zinman in Toronto, is a really good guy. He's really established in ALS research. And, and he said, I'm going to try to talk you out of this. It's a lot of travel. It's a lot of work. I was like, okay, take right. a breath. Save your breath. Yeah. <laughs> We're coming. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. I... I have to take a break here, but I do want, before we do that, because I don't want to have, like, it's like, I don't want to just jump cold into it. I want to give you the floor and give you the the break, the first part of this break. What can people do? What's the most effective way to help or what, what do you want to get out there for listeners? Sure, sure. I, I think that 
this disease is is one that remains a disease with next to no hope or no hope for 98% of people who are diagnosed with it. Uh, it is probably the worst news that someone can get walking into a doctor's office uh, for that reason. And what I've realized is because there are only 20,000 people in North America with this, so call it one NHL arena full of people, uh, access to trials and you know the funding for this is not where it should be in 2020. Uh, the most effective thing people can do, we believe, is to donate to research. Uh, while we totally understand and agree with the need for like care for people who are sick, uh, research is is where we can really make a difference. So we've begun uh, a fund uh, that we are going to funnel to probably multiple places in the U.S. and in Canada uh, that we, we believe are, are doing the best research out there. And I think that at times when you think about research, it can feel very far from a solution. But the drug that I am on was discovered, created, whatever you wanna call that, by a smaller university in the Midwest of the US. And it was sold to a company that then, you know, was attempting to take it to market. Um, our, our website is Calgary Flames forward slash Snowy Strong. Uh, we think that the trick shot challenge Hashtag trick shot for the number four snowy uh, that we've started last week is going to hopefully be very effective in a, a creative way uh, to solve this. And, and the biggest point I would probably make is we aren't looking for massive donations. Uh, the, the analogy I drew to getting to our $500,000 goal when I was uh, first talking about this in December, January, is if we can get a $25 donation from the entire saddle dome or the equivalent thereof of people then we're at five hundred thousand uh, dollars a lot of our a lot of the donations probably about 70 percent have been to the flames foundation for people who are in the u.s listening to this uh, i would love to see them if they donate donate to the university of miami link on our page because they have a special place uh, to my family we've had three members participate in their research and they've been at this for two decades and I, I strongly strongly believe in their ability to someday identify biomarkers that tell them okay someone has this he's not sick yet we're going to go in here's how we turn that off so that would be that would be what we are after and and we think awareness and and every little bit of funding uh from a lot of people will make a big difference Awesome. So if you're listening to this, I want to see those videos, the trick shot for Snowy, the hashtag, tag me on it on Twitter. I will retweet every single one of them. And let's let's really spread this out. I think I think it's it's awesome. Um, and with that, let me let me uh, take a quick break and we'll hop right back in. Perfect. Let me just take a quick break from this conversation with Chris to talk about with Father's Day coming up, what could be a really good gift idea. Because I'm going to give you an idea that can not only uh, not only will dad be excited about, mom will benefit. Because my friends at Hawthorne have a wide range of things from soaps to deodorants to colognes uh, that make a fantastic Father's Day gift. Sometimes you hear this and it's you can tell the person doesn't know what they're talking about. I, I can tell you right now, I am currently, as we sit here, wearing Hawthorne deodorant. 
And the fact that I've applied any deodorant at all um, during quarantine is a huge plus for my family, first of all. But it's at request of my wife, who loves it. She's like, this smells amazing. And so I'm a simple man. Like, you, if, she tell, if she compliments me, I tend to go back and do it again and again. It's very specific how things work with, with Hawthorne. What you have to do, and you can do this on behalf of your dad. So go to their website. You take a quick two-minute quiz. And Hawthorne tells you the two colognes that are the best for you or your dad. One for work and one for play, if cologne is what you're looking for. And they do this for all of their items. Um, it's it's actually a fun quiz to take. Like you're asked about like whiskey and wine and, you know, how much are you a sweater? Are you not someone who sweats a lot? And um, and I'm not like because I don't like a lot of physical activity. Um, but that's that's a complete aside. So you take their quiz. And then you make an order that is totally risk-free with free shipping and free returns. So really, there's nothing to lose here if you go to their website. So as a listener here, you get a deal, of course. So I would encourage you to check out Hawthorne at hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E in .co, not .com. Hawthorne.co. And use my promo code FULL60 to get 10% off your first purchase. That's hawthorne.co. Use the promo code FULL60 to get 10% off your first purchase. I would completely pick up some stuff for yourself, pick up some stuff for dad, and it will be a huge hit. All right. So, Chris, one of the things I want to get, like, I wanted to have you on here for for years just because your story, like, you've Mm -hmm. done what I think a lot of us sit here in the business to consider. But before I get to that... In um, I don't know if it was the Sports Illustrated story, but there was a quote from the doctor when you were diagnosed a year ago that said, and if I'm getting it wrong, you can correct me, do what brings you joy. Mm-hmm. And that to me, like, I mean, I, we all should do that anyways, but, you know, that zero, zeroing in on that and, and that becoming the focus, um, I think would really be transformative. What, when you were told that, like, what, 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 were you like, okay, this is what I have to do? Especially when your wife is like, hey, we have to have the summer to last a lifetime. Like, that's right. that's a lot. Yeah. You know what? It, 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 the one part I was happy about when I started thinking about what that meant is I thought I wouldn't change a lot about my that's life. That's great. Like, like, joy is you go for a bike ride with the kids to get an ice cream down the hill. Uh, you know, it meant spending more time in New Hampshire for me last summer because that is the place I spent summers growing up. It's easily my favorite place in the world. And if I'm out on a boat ride or pulling the kids on a tube uh, or going out for, you know, fried seafood that is available everywhere up there, then that, you know, that's where I feel most relaxed. And to be honest, to be able to blend that with work was perfect, right? Because right. I, always, I always feel a necessity to contribute. It makes me feel good. I get, you know, a reward, enjoyment out mm-hmm. of that. So cause the good thing was that there was, like, I didn't want to go to, like, you know, Trinidad and Tobago. I didn't have like crazy, like I didn't want to, <laughs> right. I didn't want to go anywhere far. I was just like, you know what? A beer in the front porch after the kids go to bed. That's joy. That's good. Yeah. And, and like, I'm, I'm wired the same way. I, and with you in that, like part of my joy is working and yeah. in, in doing a job that I at least feel is on some level fun, which, uh, you know, I, I have fun every day and, and like contributes in some way. And I, I get the sense like that's, you're wired that way. Yeah. Yeah. I've always had them. My dad probably instilled that in me. And, you know, I, I got to I've my entire life, like gotten to do things that are 
enjoyable for a job. You know, I think the last job I probably didn't love was waiting tables when I was 19 or 20. And ever since then, it's been going to a, excuse me, ballpark or rink uh, pretty much every day for, you know, 20, 20 years, basically. It's probably since I went to Syracuse and that'd be 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And you hinted at it 14 years ago today. Right? Yeah. Is that is that right? So yeah, I pulled up been... Dan Shaughnessy's story about it. It was fourteen years ago, yesterday, I suppose. But to the story ran today, where Shaughnessy's talking to the Red Sox players, and uh, you know, Mark Loretta, really sharp guy. He's like, "Oh, this is great for Chris. You know, uh, baseball's gone to whiz kids as GMs. Maybe it happens for him." Frank Owen is like, "Well, I guess that anybody can work in a front office." And then, <laughs> and then they get around to Manny Ramirez, and he's like, "Who's Chris?" That's <laughs> amazing, Chris. So, no. Yeah, he's like, who? The guy that's been crazy. Here for two years. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sums it up. Like that. If if anybody wants to know what our life is like as reporters, you have yeah. the people that are engaged that that you're with every day, and they know who you are, and they're asking about your family, and you're asking about theirs, and then you have the people that it's like you're interviewing for the first time every single time. <laughs> <laughs> David Wells was that way. David Wells one day yeah. he's like, "Well, why is it always the hefty lefty? Why not just the lefty?" And I was like, I knew he didn't know who anybody was. And one of my buddies, right. Dave Herschel for the Hartford paper, I was like, right, and Herschel standing there. And to Wells, I was like, oh, yeah, especially that Herschel guy. Like, he is the worst at that. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, if I ever see that guy. If I, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so, so what, I mean, you were by all, I mean, like you would at a young age, how old would you have been at the Globe covering the Sox? I would have Sox? been, uh, let's see, 23 and 24. Oh. So, yeah. So, so you, like, to achieve that at any age, like in our, in our profession, these are highly competitive jobs. You have to be, mm-hmm. you know, the best of the best. And you get there. And you hit a, you hit a kind of, get to a place where people will work decades to get to in a, a very competitive field even more i mean i don't want to see even more so then because it's impossible now um but i i feel like getting to the boston globe at that point in time is is th- like the, the 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 pinnacle can you just take me through that thought process and and what went into it what was next into into leaving into leaving into considering yeah. it to even like yeah. sit there and go hey I went to Syracuse because I, I think they're a big part of it for me. And like, I have these, these talks all the time with people. I think just cause I, I, I love the, 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 just analyzing it to death um, is you're, you've already invested, even at that age, you've invested college money, internships, time, source development. So you're in. And so I, I like, I would love to know mm-hmm. that process at that point. It, it was the most challenging decision I ever had to make. Uh, by by a mile, and I, I think it was because the the Boston Globe not only hired me at age twenty three and twenty four to cover baseball, but they they took a chance on me as an intern twice when I was uh, after my second and third years of of college, and so I felt loyalty to them. I I felt close to them. Uh, I was in my hometown. I was on TV before every Red Sox game regionally, you know, across New England, and my parents and their friends could pick up the paper the next morning and enjoy that story. Now it really bothered me that most of their friends lived outside of the uh, inner rings. They got the first edition of the paper that was hastily and poorly written. The the worst. Oh, the worst. You're like, okay, this just has to go hit send. And, and and then 
that that second year covering the Red Sox, I think I just I didn't know if I could see myself walking into a baseball clubhouse every day for a long time. Uh, I didn't love some aspects of the standing around and some of the interactions, and I missed hockey. I, I actually at one point asked. Uh, believe it or not, I asked Joe Sullivan, the editor, if I could uh, cover the Bruins instead. He said, uh, no, this is our biggest beat, and no, you're not, you're not going <laughs> off it. And, and that summer, though, I got really challenged to make this decision because Yahoo Sports offered me a uh, hockey writing job. They had just started with original content. And then mm-hmm. SI offered me a baseball writing position that was part most any website with a, a little tease element of maybe do some magazine work. And I was, I was just kind of paralyzed by all this. And, and then I went to Doug Risebrough, who I had maintained a, you know, kind of probably a developing friendship with for advice. I thought that Doug always had a clear way of thinking about things and would be very impartial. And, you know, he wound up presenting this, this fourth option of what if you came and worked for me? And he said that, you know, the salary cap is new. Uh, we don't really have any any data or, or use of that in this league, whereas baseball, the Red Sox had won the World Series and, and Theo Epstein and, and that the money ball movement was was, you know, a storyline out there. And and I, I, I took I took a long time to decide. First of all, he was offering very little money. I was going to say that had to be a pay cut. Oh, it was going to be, now I wasn't making that much at the Globe, but it was going to be about a 50% pay cut. It was very, <laughs> it was going to be very entry level. Um, I, I was, I was making a little bit of money from Nesson too and some, you know, Sunday night sports appearances. So I, when I rolled all that together and looked at what the Wild was offering, I, I was choking on it. And, and yet I was really, really intrigued. And it took me it took me weeks. I recall being in the press box at Yankee Stadium and negotiating with Doug and with Tom Lynn, his assistant GM. And finally, it all had to come to a head because Doug was he was getting impatient. Yeah, and sure. It was yeah, it was early uh, to mid June. It was this time of year, and the Red Sox were were going to Minnesota for a series of all places. And I can remember flying in and looking down on it and thinking like, I have to decide after this plane lands. I can wait till we land, but <laughs> I have to decide soon. And so I, I met Doug for coffee, and he, he's, he's, he's saying, I don't understand why this is so hard for you. He said, either come, in which case you'll be more valuable if it doesn't work out, because you'll have this inside perspective, you know, or, or just say. And, and so I think that comment probably helped push me over the edge, but I still didn't decide until the next day when I drove over to his offices and walked out and had to make a decision like at the very last second I could. And then I called, I called the globe editor and I, I texted with him yesterday and hadn't talked to him in a while and said, Hey, here's our anniversary. And he said, that was a sad day. And he says, I still think about what I could have done to keep you. And I said, well, it was sad for me too. Like, I, I think I was crying or on the verge of tears, probably crying because, you know, so much of my uh, path in life was, was already established and it was established in my hometown and now I was going to you know as Chris Jones wrote in in his story that he was so kind to write about me back then like I was going to middle America to take a job that was difficult to explain and it was difficult to explain because because the first thing I did was sort the jerseys down in the uh, storage unit from the the past six years of the organization yeah Doug, Doug brought me along slowly at the beginning 
I get we doing laundry to start. That's a... <laughs> yeah, not not quite laundry, but you know, like buying giant Rubbermaid bins at Target and then trying to organize season by season. Uh, you know, okay, alternative jersey, third jersey, this jersey, and and find a place to put those. And but you know, I, I always say those those three years I worked with Doug, uh, I I got a lot more out of it than probably the team did. You know, he mm-hmm. yeah, he and sure. Jock, I traveled all the time, and he and Jacques taught me the game. You know, I, I yeah. can't imagine someone who would understand and explain hockey in a in a more straightforward manner than Jacques Lemaire. And and Doug liked to go on these, you know, three four hour walks. Like, just ask Jeff Gordon if you're ever with him. Uh, yeah. If he's ever gone on a walk with Doug, and <laughs> he he will tell you a story, and he will tell you that he will never do that again. So, <laughs> Uh, that, that they were teachers, they were natural teachers, and uh, that was just a, a terrific experience that allowed me to kind of continue to move along in this league. I remember when I was doing my book and talking to Todd McClellan, who came up through the Wild organization. He, yeah, he said Doug Riseborough was so instrumental in mentoring him and guiding his career, and and so this clearly is something that Doug um, takes seriously, or maybe doesn't even think about, just does naturally. And one of the things he told Todd was, you know, don't, you're going to get opportunities, so don't rush it, right? Like, you're mm-hmm. going to get opportunities to be a head coach, and, um, you know, don't just take the first one, work your way up. Um, and Todd, you know, and you look at the, the jobs Todd ended up choosing, was smart with that and clearly impacted by Doug. And I would be curious, you, you talk about learning more from Doug than you provided. What, what do you think mm-hmm. in that area you learned the most from him? Uh, Doug was, Doug was all about winning. Uh, you know, he, he had obviously won four cups in Montreal. Uh, he was, you know, he was around Scotty Bowman. He, he won in Calgary as an assistant coach. Uh, the advice he gave to Todd McClellan would likely be largely rooted in the fact that he got into some jobs in Calgary way too soon. And he'd be the first to tell you that. I think he went from assistant coach to GM in a span of maybe four years. Uh, if you walked into our, our dressing room and you looked at all the pictures lined up year by year, you would see Doug in you know a different role in four consecutive years, I want to say. Uh, so I think he realized, first of all, how, how you win. And it's actually quite simple. You, know, you, filter, you filter everything through a, a, a very limited set of values. And I remember saying to me, one day you win when you have the right person in every single role. And that doesn't necessarily mean the absolute most talented, but you have the right person in terms of personality and selflessness uh, in every single role. Uh, And and then I think the mentoring part you spoke to and spoke to with Todd, that would come, that would come naturally. Like he, he doesn't think about those things. He just uh, he just speaks in a way that that things kind of stick, and you right. you trust him, you trust him blindly because of it. My wife loves to tell a story. When my son was a year, probably a year old, maybe two, he was walking, yeah, maybe two, and we went for a hike with Doug at a place called Stanley Glacier, which is just beyond the Alberta border into BC, past Banff, and it was a terrible day. It was it was September, but it was sleeting. And we just kept going and going to the point that my son Cohen was asleep in a carrier on my wife's back and we were on all fours going over slippery rocks. And finally we got there and we see the glacier and we walk one hour back toward the car. And at the one hour back mark, there's a sign in the rocks that says 
trail ends here. <laughs> and so <laughs> my wife says, Doug, Doug, it says trail ends here. He doesn't even break stride, and he just says, Kels, the trail ends where you decide it ends. And <laughs> that's amazing. That's, that's Doug. That's Doug. That's so I, amazing. I honestly don't talk to him a ton. We talked last week for about an hour and a half, and when you do, you kind of pick up where you left off, and right. you know, he reassures you, and he, you know, he gives you life lessons. And then it's funny, like you, you, you're talking for a long, long time, but he's not big on like the, uh, you know, the subtleties of, of ending a conversation. He's like, "All right, gotta go," and then he's gone. Yeah, it's and out. And then you know, you pick it up two or six months later. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Gosh, the the trail ends where you say it ends. Oh, I'll never forget it. Um, I, I love the concept of putting decisions through a small set of filters when you're trying to build a winner. Um, do you know what those filters are? You know, we had, well, before I forget them, three of them were definitely team, passion, honesty, and there was one more. What we did is we had, we, it took us a while. We found four pictures that we felt each picture really represented one of those. And then we had the players themselves define what the word meant to them. So six players per image, and then we put those up real big in the tunnel of the ice. And, you know, that, that, that actually is right more symbolic than than anything i think that with with jacques and doug it was just so clear how things were going to be done and you look at that right. team and i think that that organization uh for whatever reason still still has the same identity yeah. that it had in 2000 right it's a team that that has real good team structure they defend really well um it, it, it that hasn't really changed and I think it's a thing that people in Minnesota, you know, could take great pride in. Uh, and I think, I think there's a legacy there. Yeah. It is amazing once you build that culture and, and to do it with an expansion team that didn't have it previously. That's And, and there is definitely a DNA there that still exists. Yeah. yeah. I think the only regret, if you can call it a regret for Doug and for Jacques, was the team was too good too soon. You know, the yeah, team got sure. to the conference finals the third year. So they're... Uh, the, the number of high picks, once you look past, I think, uh, you know, Marion Gabbert the first year and, and Miko Koi was sixth overall and Pierre-Marc Bouchard eighth overall there. Yeah. There wasn't the opportunity to build, you know, after after Marion, probably like a real game breaker uh, right. through the draft. And and that was Shock's fault. He, he coached <laughs> right, too well. Right, too good. He coached way too well. And, and I think there was a lot of character. Like the identity of the players who were selected, you think about, you know, Darby Hendrickson and Wes Walls and Willie Mitchell. And I'm just thinking mm-hmm. the names that come to mind quickly. Yeah. Like they found Jim Dowd, players who had a real ability to play hard, uh, to play within a system, to take pride in being, you know, really valuable uh, after having their careers be kind of up and down. Anti-locks mm-hmm. and like they had a lot of guys who were able to keep that team in games. And, and they did it all the way to the Western Conference Finals. But you know, we're probably never able to draft quite high enough because of it. <laughs> right, right. How did you f- navigate the world of being an outsider in the hockey? You know, the hockey yeah. is so like, yeah. You, you, as you weren't a former player, you weren't like you were. You were an outsider. You're, you're, in fact, probably the, you're the, the enemy, outsider. right? Coming, yeah, yeah. the media. Home, oh my gosh. Yeah. I, how I, have I, you? And you know, and how did yeah. you find that? I think that with the wild, it was probably. 
it, it probably was challenging. People knew that Doug had hired me and, and taken this really odd chance on me. So they, they knew that uh, Doug fully had my back. So I think that the consequences of those are two things. One was I was able to go and do my job, but the problem would have been that people probably would have thought whatever I say to him will go right to Doug. You know, sure. So it was challenging. Yeah, you're Doug's guy, to, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. To build relationships. Uh, and I, but I think over time, uh, I think the bar for an outsider is high. So I think the only way you can clear that bar is through hard work, through being very honest and open with people about who you are and, mm-hmm. and trying to earn their, their respect. And I think it, you know, I'd like to say that over time, as I started to, um, you know, produce more and, and give more than simply be learning. And I call the wild years largely learning years. Yeah. Um, hopefully that happened. I mean, I look at, I look at the fact that I've worked for, let's see, it's probably four, four GMs. Uh, and, and, and they've continued to find work for me <laughs> to be a side, right. you know, I, I was hopefully able to, to, to clear that bar. Um, I just think if you're around long enough and you are, you treat people well enough, uh, then ultimately, you know, hopefully the benefit of the doubt is, is given to you. So to me, the, um, getting the second job with the second organization is almost as big, right? If you're yeah. Doug's guy and you get hired and it doesn't work, you're whatever, like he screwed that up. How did, how'd you get hired in Calgary? So now it's like, okay, now well, you're a hockey yeah. guy at that point. Yes, that that's right. That's right. I think it's the second job that, that validates that. I, yeah. I agree. I, I owe I owe uh kind of a debt to to each person along the way who either hired me or helped me. When when Doug was let go, Chuck Fletcher was hired, and Chuck had a group of people who he was bringing in some right away, and it was clear that there was redundancy with the work. It, you can only have so many people day right. to day. But Chuck, Chuck gave me the opportunity to go out and scout that year. I was in charge of scouting the Midwest for uh, the NHL and the AHL. And he allowed me to do a uh, Cal Clutterbuck's contract with, with him uh, kind of, you know, helping out. So we kind of did it together. And those were things that Chuck didn't have to do, but he, he knew how hard it is to get that second job. I'm sure he knew he was not going to have me back. And, and he let me get out there and, and kind of build a, a bit of a name recognition. So that was really helpful. Uh, and then Jay Feaster was the interim uh, GM here in, in 2010, 11. And I just got to know Jay at a, a breakfast meeting. Every time a team came through St. Paul where I lived, I would try to meet with the GM or assistant GM if it was the assistant traveling. And, and Jay gave me a long, long meeting that honestly, it got my hopes up. This was probably the fall and I had been let go a handful of months earlier in the late spring, early summer. And I was really excited, went home and told Kelsey, I think this could work with Calgary. And and then and then there was a change made there. Jay was an assistant then. Change made to go from Daryl to Jay as the interim GM. And and, and it kind of went quiet. And then, and then fast forward to to March and I was at the, the GM's meet every year as you would know in Boca Raton in Florida. And I, I emailed all 30 of them and asked for a meeting and 10 agreed. And none of them were Jay. And one was Brian Burke and Burke, sits down. It's just, it's the best of all. Burke, sits down, doesn't say hello and says, you know what your problem is? And I got to leave out one of Burke's choice words. And I said, you don't have to, no. this is uh... no, okay. <laughs> and, 
And Berkey's, Berkey says, there's one guy who's hired you in this league, and no one knows why he has. And so, mm. you know, I'm kind of laughing on the inside. And I, I said, okay, well, here's here's why. And I gave him a 10-minute presentation, and he was really good, really receptive. Uh, so long story short, Jay Feaster doesn't speak with me there, but two days later calls and says, how would you like to consult for us? And if I get the interim tag taken off, I'll hire you full-time. So I guess it was just seeing me That's almost great. go out with another girl. <laughs> and, right, uh, right. And, and, and Jay called. So I was thrilled and then he hired me that June and and to be honest it was it was still a challenge because I was starting over in a, a new place and and I think when, when Brian Burke came in um, Berkey you know began to solidify a bit what I was going to do and then when Tree came in he was really good because he said okay we're going to build the best analytical department in the league tell me how we're going to do that uh, now he made me sell it time and again but uh, every year, you know, we spent more and more in that area. And every year, Tree has given me, you know, more and more responsibilities. So I, I recall the day he was hired in 2014. We were actually on vacation. Bad, bad luck. You're away on vacation. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. New guy comes in. Yeah. yeah. Go and right to voicemail. Said, oh, brutal. It did when I called. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I was we're driving through Scottsdale. It's funny because that's where he was he was living probably. He's up in Calgary. And I, I turned to Kelsey and I said, Oh, I said, another guy I have to prove myself to. Right. And she said, Well, you will, because that's what you do. And in hindsight, his hiring was the the best thing that you know Brian Burke could have done for my career. Yeah. Yeah, Brad, Brad's a great dude. Um this has got a complete aside, and we're running out of time, so I don't want to dive into it. But in that moment in time, you became the, like when Berkey was at the crosshairs of the analytics folks, he would always go, I've got Chris Snow, one of the bright, and then he'd be like, oh, you, you've got a former writer leading the, you know what I mean? It, be, it became yeah. this huge like back and forth, which is, seems like a million years ago now. It does. It does. It's funny. Berkey and I would get into these, these back and forth in meetings and, you know, because he, he wanted to be challenged and, and he yeah. would, of course, come right at you. And there, there was one where at the deadline, I think, and he's talking to a certain player and he said, all he does is score at home on the power play. And I was like, I'm like the answer guy on uh, PCI. Yeah. Well, yeah. actually, Berkey, oh, actually. he scores a lot more on the road and he scores a ton of five. I'm not even done with the sentence. He's telling me to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, I, I thought That's I was in big. deep with him one day. He, he was talking about a player in the U.S. Olympic team and I started to shake my head, kind of disagreeing, and didn't even realize I was shaking it. And he says, yeah. well, obviously, Snowy doesn't agree down there. And I thought I was dead meat. And at lunch, I said, yeah, hey, Berkey, I, I really didn't mean to you know, offend you or show you up right. there. And he's like, what are you talking about? So I walked him back to that moment. And the next day, we had a charity event. and said, Snowy, come here. And he said, I want you to always speak your mind. And if there's a problem, you're going to know right away. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. You don't have to guess. No, you do, with Brian Burke. Exactly. No, if you've crossed him, you hear about yeah. it. I can tell you. Um, yeah. All right. I want to end with this, and it, this is a weird place to get in an um, in an assessment of you, but it was actually in the comments section of a Boston Globe story about you. And the commenter clearly knew you and your family. I don't know who, who it was, and they said. Chris lives his life in a way that good things just seem to find him. 
and it was a story about you being diagnosed with ALS. And I, and, and it was a testament to how you seem to always carve out and find a positive. Wh- where do you think that comes from? And wh- when you hear that, what, you know, what does that mean to you? Yeah. You know what? I, I actually read that. I, I normally don't read the comments, but when there are stories like these, you can hope they're all going to be positive. Uh, I, I would definitely attribute that to my mom. Uh, she's been, she's been gone eight years now. Um, she took her own life and we never, ever saw that coming because she was the happiest, the most resilient person I ever knew. Uh, she had breast cancer when I was, I was probably two or three and my sister had just been born and she beat that and it was never you know never stood in her way like she had all sorts of you know pain that was residual to that in her upper arm when she played catch and yet she would play catch until i asked to go in uh there she never had a moment that was that was about her um which might be why she's not here today but the 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 entire focus she had was on making every day of her kids' lives and the lives of her husband and friends and people around her uh, as good as it could possibly be for them. And so that 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 I get completely from her. And uh, you know, I tell my kids lots of stories about her for that reason. Well, Chris, thanks for doing this. Thank you. It's nice to have a you know a long conversation, and I sure appreciate you and the listeners. Awesome. And uh, we'll, we'll catch up with you soon. Terrific. I can't wait. I want to thank Chris for joining the podcast. I that has been Chris Snow has been on the full sixty want list from about episode one three years ago or whenever this thing launched. Chris is one of those guys that you feel like um, he, he said this about Doug Risebury like you don't have to talk often but you feel like you talk often. I like I feel that way with Chris. I don't even know like we don't know each other that well. He was covering he was a writer before I was covering the NHL. So we didn't really cross paths until he was well-established in front office. And it's always an easy conversation. Always enjoy my interactions with Chris. And that's why it's really easy to root for him and, and follow and track his progress. And you can follow Chris on Twitter and definitely check out that, the hashtag for his fundraiser. And again, that's TrickShot4Snowy with the numeral four. But to me, the absolute best way, and I can't recommend this enough, you I want everybody to go do this, is follow his wife, Kelsey Snow, on Twitter. And her Twitter handle is Kelsey, it's Kelsey's Rights, and that sounds like a mouthful, and I just had a hard time saying it, at K-E-L-S-I-E-S, Rights, W-R-I-T-E-S. So just Google her in, on Twitter and follow along. Her blog posts are amazing. Um, the progress that you know she's just tweeting out videos her documentation of this whole thing has, has been awesome to, to witness and it's just a great way to track it so I would strongly recommend that you do that uh, alright and before we wrap up a couple things if you didn't listen to the Ian Cole episode last week if you're like I'm not an Avalanche fan or whatever I can skip that one I um, the feedback we've gotten has been amazing Ian seemed to enjoy being on the show he tweeted it out it was just a fun conversation, and you don't have to be a Colorado Avalanche fan. You don't have to be a Penguins fan. It was just a good hockey chat. So go listen. Give, give that one a shot. If you, don't, you know, if you don't like it, you don't have to, but I would strongly recommend doing that. And also, um, really awesome guest on the two-man advantage this week with Pierre Lebron and Scott Burnside is Doc Emmerich, who Doc may be 
one of the three best storytellers in the game. He's one of those guys you ask a question and he has a great story. I mean, you know it by watching. Like he's he'll slip in a story in between plays that's just killer. And I and I can't imagine uh, how he's going to be when he has the time to chat on a podcast. So definitely check out Two Man Advantage this week. All right. That is it. So thanks again to Chris Snow for for being on the podcast. Thank you for listening and have a great week.